Shall we bow our heads for prayer? Father in heaven, thank you that in spite of the sinfulness of this world, you still care so much about us that you send your son and you send your reign upon righteous and unrighteous. Father, we take these things for granted, but each one of these things is a blessing that comes directly from your hands. Father, we ask that the reign of your Holy Spirit will fall in this place, that through the Spirit you will make your message crystal clear. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of approaching your throne, and thank you for hearing our prayer, for we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to begin by reading a statement that we find in that classic history book called Patriarchs and Prophets, page 68. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 68. Of course, this book was written by Ellen White, and she's talking here about the plan of redemption, and this is what she says. But the plan of redemption had a yet broader and deeper purpose than the salvation of man. It was not for this alone that Christ came to the earth. It was not merely that the inhabitants of this little world might regard the law of God as it should be regarded, but it was to vindicate the character of God before the universe. The purpose of the plan of salvation, yes, was to save man. But a broader purpose was that through the salvation of man, the universe could catch a glimpse of the character of God. Uh, how God resolves the problem of sin. You see, the problem of sin is a universal cosmic problem. And therefore, in order to resolve the sin problem, you need a cosmic and universal solution. The Bible tells us that the angels are involved in the conflict or the controversy that is taking place. In fact, the Bible tells us that the devil was able to deceive one-third of the angels of heaven with his lies. And the other angels, the two-thirds, even though they remained loyal to God, there's no doubt that they had questions about the statements of Lucifer concerning God. And therefore, God decided that because the heavenly beings were involved in the controversy because the controversy began in heaven that he would make this little world an object lesson that would reveal clearly his character before the universe. Let's read about the origin of sin. In Revelation chapter 12 and verses 7 through 9, we find a description of the origin of sin. It did not happen on earth. It happened in heaven. It says there, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast 
out with him. So the controversy originated in heaven. Heaven is involved in the great controversy. This is a cosmic universal mess. And heaven is watching. As we studied in our last lecture, the heavenly council is contemplating things that happen on earth. And they're watching how God resolves the problem of sin in harmony with his character. We're going to notice in our study that the purpose of the three stages of the judgment is to clarify before the entire universe how God solves the problem of sin. The Bible makes it clear that heaven is involved. Heaven is watching. In fact, allow me to read you several statements from Scripture that indicate that heaven is involved with the events that are taking place on earth. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 9, and I'm reading this from the New International Version, and uh, some people don't like the New International Version. Uh, I have issues with this version of the Bible because of certain things that are left out. But I'll tell you that the translation of 1 Corinthians 4.9 is good in the NIV. Notice what it says. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. And then notice, we have been made a spectacle. That Greek word is theatron where we get our word theater from. In other words, you could translate it, we have been made a theater of the whole universe to angels and to man. Are the angels involved in this theatrical presentation called sin? Absolutely. Notice 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 10 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 says as much. The angels are watching the way that God solves this problem of sin to see what God's character is like if God solves the problem in harmony with his character. It says there in verse 12, and we'll read uh, several verses, it says concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time, I'm reading from the NIV, this text also, and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them, that is to the prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preach the gospel to you by the Spirit sent from heaven. And now notice what the last part of verse 12 says. Even the angels long to look into these things. It's speaking about salvation. It's speaking about redemption and the prophets who wrote about the time of the coming of Christ and the circumstances of the coming of Christ. And it says here, even the angels long to look into these things. Do you know that the death of Jesus on the cross actually closed the book on the doubts that the heavenly beings had 
concerning the character of God, even those who had remained loyal. Because the death of Jesus on the cross not only reconciled earth with him, but it also reconciled heaven. Notice Colossians chapter 1 and verses 19 and 20. Colossians chapter 1 verses 19 and 20. It says here, For it pleased the Father that in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. Verse 20, And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things where? On earth or things where? In heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Did heaven also need to be reconciled through the cross of Jesus Christ? This passage clearly says yes. Notice also Luke chapter 15 and verse 10. When sinners repent on earth, the angels are overjoyed in heaven. There's a connection between the angels and the events of planet earth. It says there in Luke chapter 15 and verse 10, Jesus is speaking, Likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I want you to notice also what we find in Psalm 51 verses 1 through 4. Psalm 51 and verses 1 through 4. This is a very interesting passage. This is David's penitential psalm after he committed adultery and it ha he had his general murdered uh, in the battlefield. He's praying to God, and notice what he says. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Interesting that David would say, you know, I confess my sin, I realize I'm a sinner, I'm not lying to you, please forgive my sin, I acknowledge this, I repent. Now when you go to the book of Romans, this text is quoted, and I want you to notice how in the New Testament the translation is changed by the Apostle Paul. See, in Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4, it speaks about God being blameless when he judges. But notice what we find in Romans chapter 3 and verse 4 where this passage is quoted. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Isn't that interesting? God is being what? God is being judged. The devil says, how can you forgive them? They're sinners. You said the wages of sin is death. How can you have mercy upon them when you said that if they sinned they would die? And so there's a dilemma. If you punish man, you don't love him. But if you don't punish him, then you're not just. There appears to be a conflict between the justice of God and the love and mercy of God. And God decides to forgive, and the devil says, oh, he forgives some, some and he doesn't forgive others. 
And so the purpose of the sanctuary service is to show that God was right in the way in which he dealt with sin. And in Psalm 51, it speaks about God judging, but when that is quoted in Romans chapter 3 and verse 4, it speaks about God being judged. In other words, the judgment has the purpose of vindicating the character of God before the universe. Now, there are basically several parties involved in the great controversy. First of all, you have the loyal heavenly beings. Among those are God, the holy angels, and the inhabitants of the worlds that never sinned. So the first group involved is the group of loyal heavenly beings. God, the holy angels, and the inhabitants of the other worlds. A second group are the penitent sinners who will be saved. And in the third place, you have impenitent sinners who are going to be lost, and also Satan and his angels. Now before the great controversy can come to an end, all of these groups have to be absolutely persuaded that God's, God resolved the sin problem in harmony with his character. You see, God does not solve the sin problem quickly. He does not implement superficial solutions. When God solves a sin problem, He is not going to leave any loose ends. We live in a society where people want immediate gratification. They want things and they want those things now, but God does not operate that way. God doesn't cut corners. When the sin problem is resolved, as a result of the three stages of the judgment, everyone in the universe, the loyal beings in heaven, the loyal beings on earth, the rebellious beings on earth, Satan and his angels will all confess that God was right in the way in which he dealt with sin. The purpose of the judgment is not to inform God who is good and who is evil, because God knew, knows the end from the beginning. The purpose of the judgment is not to inform God. The purpose of the judgment is to inform the universe because the universe does not know everything, and they need to see how God solves the problem of sin. Now at each stage of the judgment, God persuades a different group. We're going to notice that as we study the three stages of the judgment. Now let's talk about stage number one of the judgment. This stage is the pre-advent investigative judgment of the righteous. Did you understand what I said? Pre-advent means before the second coming. Investigative means that their cases are going to be researched or investigated from the books. And of course, it means that the righteous are the ones who are going to be judged before Jesus comes. And you say, why would the righteous be judged before Jesus comes? Well, the answer is very simple. You see, Jesus, when he comes again, is going to take his faithful people to heaven. And so he has to reveal before he comes who he has a right to take to heaven. Are you with me or not? There's an urgency to judge the righteous before he comes, because when he comes, he's planning to what? He's planning to take them to heaven. And so he must reveal who truly repented, confessed, forsook sin, and by faith claimed the perfect life and the death of Jesus Christ as his or hers. 
It needs to be revealed to the universe so that when Jesus takes his people home, all of the heavenly universe says, you brought everyone that you had a right to bring based on your character. Now the question is, when does this judgment take place, this first stage? Revelation 14, 6 and 7 makes it very clear. Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. We've read this before. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Question. Is there still an opportunity to be saved when the everlasting gospel is being preached? Absolutely. While the gospel is being preached, people can be saved. But now notice what takes place as the gospel is being preached. It says in verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment will come. No, has come. Does the judgment begin while the gospel is being preached? Yes or no? Yes, so must it begin before the close of probation and before the coming of Jesus? Very clearly. And so it says, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So the judgment takes place while the gospel is being preached, before probation closes, before Jesus comes. Now where does this judgment take place? It takes place in heaven. Notice Daniel chapter 7, 9 and 10. We read this before, but let's read it again. Daniel 7 verses 9 and 10. It says, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. Where does the Ancient of Days live? Our Father which art in heaven. So it says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Who are these? The angels. Where do the angels live? In heaven. They surround the throne of God the Father. And then notice what the verse ends saying. Verse 10. The court was seated and the books were opened. Where does this judgment take place? It takes place in heaven. When does it take place? Before the clo close of probation, before Jesus comes, while the gospel is being preached. Do we have a specific date for the beginning of this judgment? We certainly do. We studied it, remember? The prophecy of the 70 weeks and the prophecy of the 2300 days. Daniel 8:14 says, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed, which is referring to the judgment, and that will be our lecture for tomorrow night. We're going to talk about the scapegoat in Leviticus chapter 16 and the millennium. Now, who must appear at this stage of the judgment? Who must appear? Everyone who claimed Jesus Christ as Savior. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. It says, For we must all appear. Now what part of all don't you understand? The Apostle Paul says we, he's speaking to believers. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 
that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Does God keep a record of our good and bad deeds? He must keep a record if we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ and we're going to have to render an account for what we did good and for what we did evil. But now we have a problem. This judgment takes place before the second coming of Jesus and it takes place in heaven. When are God's people going to go to heaven? When Jesus comes. So how can they appear before the judgment seat of Christ in heaven before Jesus comes? Especially those who are in their graves. Notice John chapter 5 verses 28 and 29. John chapter 5 verses 28 and 29. Where are the righteous who died? They're in their graves. Where are the wicked who have died? They're in their graves also. Notice John 5, 28. Jesus is speaking, he says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. Where are the righteous dead? In their graves. And come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of what? Of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So here's the question. How can God's people appear before the judgment seat of Christ, especially those who have died are, and are in their graves, and they don't resurrect until Jesus comes, and also the living who are walking on planet earth until Jesus comes, how can they appear before the judgment seat of Christ? The answer is that they do not appear in person, they appear through their records. They appear through what is written in the books. Are you with me? That extra lecture that I was talking about, don't miss it, because I'm going to talk about the book and the books and how the judgment transpires. It's a fascinating message. Now I want you to notice Luke, Luke chapter 12 and verses 8 and 9. Luke chapter 12 verses 8 and 9. This gives us an idea about Jesus examining our case and confessing us before the angels. See, the angels are involved. They're watching. They're watching each one of our cases. It says there in Luke chapter 12, verses 8 and 9, Also I say to you, Jesus is speaking, Whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before whom? Before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before whom? The angels of God. Are the angels of God watching the cases of individuals on planet earth? Absolutely. But now I want you to notice that in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5, when, it's, when Jesus said that he will confess us before the angels of God, really what he meant is that he's going to confess our name before the angels of God. Because we're not there in person. Our name will be brought up. Notice Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. Here Jesus is speaking, by the way, also. He says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his what? His name from the book of life, but I will confess his what? His name before my Father, and before his what? And before his angels. What is Jesus going to confess before his Father? He's going to confess our name, and where is our name written? It is written in the book of life. So we are not there in person, we are there through our records because God in heaven has an exact record of who we are on earth. 
In other words, we appear there through the record of our lives. Now listen, most Christians have no need for the idea of a judgment before Jesus comes. Do you know why? It's very simple. Because most Christians believe that when you die you go to heaven. So if when you die you go to heaven, why would there have to be a judgment to decide whether you're going to go to heaven or not? Are you with me? So the doctrine of the judgment is related to the doctrine of the state of the dead. If you believe that the dead, when they die, their soul flies off to heaven and receives its reward, then you can't believe that there's going to be a judgment of everyone before Jesus comes, because people were judged when they died. Are you following me tonight? In other words, if you are wrong on the state of the dead, you will be wrong about the judgment and vice versa. Now what happens when all of the righteous have been judged, when all of the righteous cases have come before the judgment bar of God? Probation will what? Probation will close. And every case will have been what? Will have been decided for life or for death, and there will be no opportunity to change. Now let me make something very clear, folks. There is a probation, a close of probation for the world, but there is also an individual close of probation before the pro close of probation for the world. Do you know what that individual close of probation is? When you die. If you don't live to the moment when the world's probation ends, but you died, when you died your probation was over. Notice what we find in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, the Apostle Paul says, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this what? After this the judgment. So is there going to be a close of human probation where people will no longer be able to be saved? When all cases will have been decided? Absolutely. Let me just review a couple of things that we studied a couple of lectures ago. Let's refer to what happened before the flood. Genesis chapter 7 and verse 16. It says, So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Did it start to rain as soon as the door closed? Absolutely not. Seven days passed, and then it began to rain. Did probation close before destruction came? Absolutely. Jesus made it clear in Matthew 24, verses 37 to 39. This is review, but we need to review it because it's very, very important. Matthew 24, 37 to 39. Jesus said, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. That's the first until. First point of time, when the door closes. He enters the ark, the door closes. And then it says, and did not know, the people did not know that they were lost, in other words, until, there's the second until, that's when it begins to rain, until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Will probation close before Jesus comes? Absolutely. Will all cases of the righteous have been decided before probation closes? Absolutely. Revelation 22 verse 11 is another verse that we looked at uh, in our study a couple of uh, lectures ago. It says there, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. 
Probation closes before Jesus comes. All cases are decided. All the cases of the righteous have been evaluated. And before the universe, it's been shown that Jesus has a right to bring these people home. Now, what happens after the tribulation period? Jesus comes. And I want you to notice Revelation 22 and verse 12. What happens when Jesus comes? It says there, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12, Jesus is speaking, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my what? My reward is with me. What is Jesus bringing? Can he bring the reward without determining beforehand what the reward is? Of course not. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. You know, it's a solemn idea that in the Bible, people are saved by grace through faith, but they will be judged by works. Because your works show if your faith is real or not. It's the proof of whether your faith was really an active, dynamic faith, or whether your faith was only an intellectual belief and a sham. And so when Jesus comes, he brings his reward, which means he must have decided beforehand what the reward would be. Notice Matthew 16, verse 27 has the same idea. Uh, Matthew 16 and verse 27. It says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. When is Jesus going to give out the reward? When he comes with all of his angels. So did he give the reward to people when they died? Absolutely not. It's when Jesus comes that people receive their reward. The Apostle Paul expected his reward when Jesus comes. Notice 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 6 through 8. Here the Apostle Paul is in the Mamertine prison in Rome. He knows that soon he's going to be beheaded. And I want you to notice what he says. 2 Timothy 4 verses 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, notice, the Lord, the righteous judge, is, is Paul going to be, uh, gonna, is his name going to go through the judgment? Absolutely, because here it says, that the righteous judge will give to me on that day. So Paul is going to receive a crown on that day, right? Now, when is that day? And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his what? Who have loved his appearing. When is it that Paul is going to be rewarded? It's not when he died, it's when Jesus what? When Jesus comes. So when Jesus comes, he's going to bring his reward. And of course, he is going to resurrect all of his faithful people who died. In fact, let's notice that in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6. Here it's speaking about the resurrection before the millennium, at the second coming of Christ. And it says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Second resurrection is after the millennium. That's the wicked. So blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ. Shall reign with him. What? With him a thousand years. So what's going to happen to the dead in Christ? They are going to what? 
they are going to resurrect. And what's going to happen with the righteous living? They are going to be changed according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now here's the big question. Where will the righteous reign for a thousand years? Will it be in heaven or will it be on earth? It depends what your background is, what you believe. You see, most Christians today, they say Jesus gave two promises. First of all, he promised to take his people to heaven, right? And secondly, he said the meek will inherit the earth. So he promised, he promised heaven and he promised the new earth. So how can Jesus fulfill both promises? Well, Christians say uh, the only way that he can fulfill both promises is if he raptures them to heaven for seven years, and then after the seven years he comes and the meek inherit the earth. That's the only way they say it can happen. But Seventh-day Adventists believe that there's another biblical way that can happen. And that is that when Jesus comes at his second coming, he will take his people to heaven for a thousand years. And then after the thousand years, he will bring them back, and he will create a new heavens and a new earth, and the meek will inherit the earth. See, it's because, because Christians believe that the millennium is going to be on earth, that they have to come up with the rapture idea because they say Jesus promised to take his people to heaven. Well, if Jesus comes only at his second coming and he establishes his kingdom on earth, then he never fulfilled his promise to take his people to heaven. That's why they say we need a rapture so that they can go to heaven for seven years and then they can come down and inherit the earth. Are you understanding? Scripture makes it very, very clear that God's people will be in heaven for a thousand years. They will not be here on earth during the thousand year period. You say, where does the Bible teach that? Go with me to John chapter 13, verses 36 and 37. We're going to notice several verses now. John 13, verses 36 and 37, and then we'll read chapter 14 and verses 1 to 3. Verse 36 says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Because Jesus said, I'm leaving. Where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Did Jesus promise Peter that he was going to follow him where he, where he was going to go? Absolutely. Now, notice what we find in verse 1 of chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, where is the Father's house? Jesus taught us to pray, our Father which art in heaven. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there ye may be what? Ye may be also. Did Jesus promise to take his people to heaven? Very clearly he did. He told Peter, you're going to go where I'm going, but it's not going to be now, it's going to be later. He promised to take us to his father's house. Now, let's notice 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 15 through 17. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 15 through 17. This is a very clear passage. It says there, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord 
will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be what? Shall be caught up together with them. What does that refer to? With them. With those who died in what? With those who died and resurrected, right? So did the righteous dead go to heaven before those who are alive go to heaven? No, they go to heaven how? Together, according to scripture. And so it says in verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain shall be, now listen carefully, shall be caught up together with them in the what? Clouds. What are those clouds? Angels. Very important. Shall, we shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord where? In the air. Is Jesus coming back to this earth to establish his kingdom at his second coming? No. He is not coming down. We are going what? We are going up. And so it says to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. This is the reason why in Matthew chapter 24, the last several verses, uh, when Jesus comes, it says he will send forth his angels to gather his elect from the four winds. And where is he going to gather them? We just read in 1 Thessalonians 4, he's going to gather them in the clouds. To meet him where? To meet him in the air. And then, what is Jesus going to do? He's going to establish his kingdom here on earth for a thousand years? No. He's going to take his people where? He's going to take his people to his father's house. Is all heaven going to be in agreement that God was right in taking all these people to heaven? Did they see the judgment? Did the angels watch the judgment? Were the names of the righteous confessed before the holy angels and before the Father? Absolutely. All cases were examined. And the heavenly, the heavenly courts, the heavenly council says, you're right in every single case. Bring them all home. Now there's no special urgency with the wicked because the wicked were left behind. And they were left behind all dead. Now let's talk about the second stage of the judgment. This is the millennial judgment. It's a judgment that takes place during the thousand years. Do you know who's going to be judged during the thousand years? It's certainly not the righteous because they were judged before Jesus came and they were taken to heaven. So the question is, who is going to be judged during the thousand years? The fact is that the Bible tells us that those who are going to be judged are the wicked and also Satan and his angels. I'm going to read you an interesting text from Scripture. Let's go to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. It says here, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them. And listen carefully. And judgment was committed to them. Are God's people going to participate in a judgment? Absolutely. Judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for what? For a thousand years. Are those people going to participate in the work of judgment? Yes, because it says, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. The question is, who are they going to judge? Well, let's go to Revelation chapter 20 and verses 11 and 12 and then to an interesting text in 1 Corinthians. 
Revelation chapter 20 and verses 11 and 12. It says here, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it from whence, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. How can dead people stand before God? <laughs> the text tells us how they stand before God. It's not dead people standing before God. They stand up there through their records. Just like before the second coming, the righteous stood before God through their records. You say, where does it say that? Let's continue reading, verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and what? And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead, listen carefully, were they dead or were they alive? Dead. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written where? In the books. So how do they appear before the judgment bar of God during the thousand years? Through their records, through what is written in the books, because God has an exact transcript of them in heaven. Now, which dead is this referring to? Is this referring to the righteous dead? No, we just read about the righteous dead. This is speaking about the wicked dead. Now go with me to a captivating passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 1 to 3. Chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians verses 1 to 3. Here the Apostle Paul clarifies who God's people are going to judge, who the righteous are going to judge during the thousand years. It says here in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 1 to 3, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? In other words, should you go to a court of law to sue your brother in a, in a secular court of law? He continues saying, do you not know that the saints will judge what? The world? And the word world refers to worldly people. It's not talking about, you know, the, the, the mass of the world doesn't need a judgment. It's talking about the worldly people. And so it continues saying, and if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? And then notice what it says. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? What are the saints going to judge? Angels! I suppose those are the good angels they're going to judge. No, the good angels don't need a judgment. The saints are going to judge which angels? Satan and his angels. They're going to even look at the record of Satan's existence and life, as well as his angels. And so it says, do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? I like to compare this millennial judgment with God's great audit. <laughs> Do you think that when the records are open in heaven, the righteous, you know, we're looking at the records and we're uh, seeing why these people were lost because there's, there's people absent in heaven that we thought for sure were going to be there. And then there's some other people that are there. We said we thought that they would never make it. And so God opens the books and he says, was the bookkeeping book done right? Was I right in excluding all of these people? Let me ask you, what does an auditor do? An, a good auditor doctors the books. No, all he does is he examines the books to see if the accounting was done correctly. And so during the thousand years, the purpose is to convince God's people 
as well as the heavenly beings, that God was right in every case of those who were left behind. Are you following me or not? I like to compare it also with an instant replay. Don't you think that when we're examining the books in heaven, we're going to say, Lord, that guy down there should be up here. That's not going to happen. Because all cases will have been decided correctly before Jesus comes. It's like an instant replay. Does an instant replay change the play? No. All it does is reveal whether the umpire made the right call. And that's what's going to be revealed. It's going to be revealed whether God actually made the right call in every single case of those who were left behind. And also we will be able to examine uh, the cases of those who are there who we never thought would be there. And as we examine the books, we'll say, Lord, you did it right. Everybody that's here should be here, and everybody that's not here, we now see that you gave them an opportunity, but they rejected the opportunity. And so that's the millennial judgment. Every case of every wicked person and the devil and his angels will be examined. But now we must go to stage number three. Stage number three takes place after the millennium. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 5 tells us that the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were ended. Who are the rest of the dead? When did the righteous resurrect? at the second coming, at the beginning of the millennium. So who are the rest of the dead that don't rise again until the thousand years are finished? It must be the wicked. So they resurrect after the thousand years. Have they already been judged in heaven? They most certainly have. Do, have they seen their case examined? No. Has the devil and have his angels seen their cases examined? Absolutely not. Are they convinced about the righteousness of God in being outside the holy city? Absolutely not. And so what's going to happen is the devil is going to go in the midst of all of the wicked and he's going to persuade them to attack the holy city. He's going to say, those people in there, they've stolen the city, it really belongs to us. And for a period of time, all of the wicked are going to buy into the devil's deceptions and they're going to prepare for war. Notice Revelation chapter 20 verses 7 through 9. Revelation 27 through 9. At this point, the wicked don't know all of the issues. It says, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. I wish I had time to talk about that. Why is the devil in prison? What is the devil's power base? His power base is his people, right? He's able to deceive people. But what happens during the millennium with all of his people? They're all dead. So he's all tied up. He has no one to deceive. His power base is gone. That's what it means when it says that he is bound. He's bound while his people are dead, and he's unbound when his people are alive. So his people come to life after the thousand years, and he gets his power back. And so it says, and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And then it says, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. But there's something that happened before the fire devoured them. The books are now open before the devil and his angels and the wicked for them to see why they were lost. Because God will not destroy them without them admitting that God was right in leaving them outside. 
Notice Revelation chapter 20 and verse 13. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 13. Here it speaks about the resurrection of the wicked and the judgment that is going to take place. It says the sea gave up the dead who were in it. What does that mean, the sea gave up the dead? It means that the dead are what? Resurrecting. And death and Hades, that's the grave, delivered up the dead who were in them. In other words, the dead are what? They're resurrecting. And now what happens? And they were what? Judged, each one, according to his works. Are the wicked going to resurrect and see the record of their lives as well? Is God going to show and persuade them that he was right in the way that he dealt with them? Absolutely. Now what was written in the books that condemned them? Revelation 21 and verse 8 gives a list of some of the things that they were guilty of, that they did not repent of or confess. They did not receive Jesus. It says, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Are those the things that they're going to see in the records of their lives? Absolutely. And that's why they are outside the holy city. I'd like to read you a passage that we find in Great Controversy, page 666, where this phase of the judgment is described. Notice what Ellen White describes in this page. You'll never forget it, page 666. <laughs> as soon as the books of record are opened, and the eye of Jesus looks upon the wicked, they are conscious of, conscious of every sin which they have ever committed. They see just where their feet diverge from the path of purity and holiness. Just how for pride and rebellion have carried, just how far pride and rebellion have carried them in the violation of the law of God. The seductive temptations which they encourage by indulgence in sin, the blessings perverted, the messengers of God despised, the warnings rejected, the waves of mercy beaten back by stubborn, unrepentant heart, all appear as if written in letters of fire. They will see the record of their lives. And then do you know what is going to happen? The Bible tells us in Isaiah 45, and this is quoted also in Philippians chapter 2, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, the whole universe at this moment, even the devil and his angels will bow, and they will say, God, we're out here, we hate you with a passion, but we have to admit that you got it right. We're lost because we chose to be lost. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Ellen White describes this great panoramic view above the city where all of the events of the life of Christ and the sufferings and the death of Christ are seen by the wicked above the city, what they could have had if they'd accepted Jesus Christ. That's what's being described here. And then when they see that, what they could have had, and how their lives have been a violation of God's law, notice what happens according 
to verse, 10, verse 9, Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And now the controversy reaches its climax because the wicked have seen the record of their lives. The devil has deceived them into thinking that he is right, they are right, and those in the city are wrong, God is wrong. But now they've seen the record. They've seen what they could have had by accepting Jesus Christ. They see that they have been excluded by their own choice. And they are filled with rage. Not against God, but against the deceiver. You know, there's this idea in the Adventist church that, that the wicked are destroyed when they're attacking the holy city. That is not biblical. The wicked die attacking Satan. Allow me to read you first of all from Great Controversy, and then I'm going to read you a passage from the book of Ezekiel. Ellen White describes this. She says, He rushes into the midst of his subjects and endeavors to inspire them with his own fury and arouse them to instant battle. But of all the countless millions whom he has allured into rebellion, there are none now to acknowledge his supremacy. His power is at an end. The wicked are filled with the same hatred of God that inspires Satan, but they see that their case is hopeless, that they cannot prevail against Jehovah. Their rage is kindled against Satan and those who have been his agents in deception. And with the fury of demons, they turn on them. And then Ellen White quotes a passage from Scripture to back up what she's saying. Ezekiel chapter 28 and verses 6 through 10. Notice what, she say, what it says there. Therefore, thus says the Lord God. It's speaking about this glorious being, Lucifer, the covering cherub. That's the theme of chapter 28 of Ezekiel. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have set your heart as the heart of God. Remember he said, I will be like the Most High. Behold, therefore, I will bring strangers against you, the most terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall throw you down into the pit and you shall die the death of the slain in the midst of the seas. The seas represent multitudes, nations, tongues, and peoples. Will you then say before him who slays you, I am God? But you shall be a man and not a God. And you say, well, the, the devil isn't a man. Sometimes in the Bible, angels are called men. For example, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel says that man Gabriel who I had seen in the vision at the beginning. So don't get thrown off by that. Verse 9, will you say before him who slays you, I am a God, but you shall be a man and not a God. In the hand of him who slays you, you shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of aliens. For I have spoken, says the Lord God. At this point, let me ask you, is all of the universe on the same page? All agree. The righteous, the heavenly beings, Satan, the wicked, his angels, all have seen the process of judgment. Everyone is persuaded that God has been right in the way in which he has dealt with sin. 
And then the Bible tells us that the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26 says, Then Hades, death and Hades, this is Revelation 20, 14 and 15, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And then the Bible tells us that God will create a new heavens and a new earth, and the meek shall inherit the earth. And I'd like to end by reading that beautiful passage in Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And then God will have a clean universe where sin will never rise again. Who in his right mind would ever want to experiment with sin again after seeing what has happened? And God's people will live forevermore with the Lord. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.